Uh, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all today. Whether you're joining us on one of our campuses or venues or watching online, we're just glad we can all be together on this fine summer Sunday. I mean, you got to love July, right? I mean, look at this. I got short sleeves on. I got my shirt untucked. I mean, come on. There you go. All right. So, uh, Dad, if you're watching online, I'm sorry. I'll tuck it back in again in September, but right now it's summertime, okay? Hey, have you ever wondered if your life is actually headed in any particular direction at all? Have you ever looked back over events and circumstances and wondered how, if at all, they ever fit together? I mean, maybe you had a happy childhood only to have things kind of go off the rails in your young adult years. Or maybe you went off and got yourself a degree only to discover you couldn't find work in your field or didn't like work in your field. Maybe there was a promising relationship that went nowhere. Uh, some random encounter or rash decision that completely changed the course of your life. Maybe you're looking back over a lifetime of gains and losses and wondering what it adds up to, if anything at all. Is life like a run-on sentence a random series of events and circumstances that tumble one after another with no sense of rhyme or reason and just keep on going and going until we run out of breath? Or is life like a story with arc and meaning and destination? And if it's a story, who's telling it and what's it all about? In our summer series here that we're calling The Punctuated Life, we come today to my second favorite punctuation mark, the comma. Now, the comma may well be the most overused and underappreciated of all the punctuation marks. It doesn't have the intrigue of the parenthesis or the excitement of the exclamation point or the curiosity of the question mark. But without the comma, many of our sentences really wouldn't make much sense at all. Or at least we wouldn't know how to make sense out of them. Take this sentence, for instance. Luis claimed Frank planned the murder. Now, if this is true, Frank's in a lot of trouble. Add a couple of commas, and it completely changes the sense of the sentence. Luis claimed Frank planned the murder. We nearly arrested the wrong guy. <laughs> a couple of commas change everything. And so the function of a comma is to divide a sentence up into parts and then connect those parts in a way that the whole thing makes sense, becomes one complete, coherent sentence or story. The comma allows the writer to extend the story, adding words and phrases to make the story more interesting or more satisfying. Take this sentence, for instance. Her upstairs neighbor, the one with the tattoo, promised to collect her mail. Now, we don't really need to know about the neighbor's tattoo, but it kind of makes the story just a little bit more interesting, doesn't it? In fact, it makes us want to know a little bit more about this woman and her neighbor, which we can do by adding a comma and a few more words, like this. Her upstairs neighbor, the one with the tattoo, promised to collect her mail, even though they hardly knew each other. Well, now we not only know more about the situation, we think even more highly of this tattooed neighbor. 
the comma extends the story, providing more information and making the ending more satisfying. So the comma divides the sentence into parts. In fact, that word comma comes from the Greek language, and it literally means cut off piece. So a comma takes the cut off pieces of a sentence and connects them again in a way that, that makes sense. So I'm going to suggest today that life is like a sentence, a long sentence that can't be understood all at once, but needs to be broken up into pieces and then put back together in a way that makes sense. And I'm also going to suggest that God is the only one who can put those pieces together in a way that's eternally satisfying and significant. And to communicate that, I'd like to share with you a story from the Bible, one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. It's a story that could easily read like a run-on sentence, characters and events bumping into each other without any sense of rhyme or reason. And yet, when all the pieces of the story are put together, it becomes one of the most beautiful stories in all the Bible, and maybe in all of literature. Now, the story is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. But the story I'm going to tell is actually Naomi's story. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Which raises another interesting question. Have you ever felt like you're stuck in someone else's story? Like you're paying a, playing a bit part in a film that's not about you? Well, that's how Naomi's story could have felt until she discovered that there was something more going on behind the scenes. So let's take a look at the story. It's told in four chapters, but five parts. And those parts are separated and connected by what I'm going to call commas. You'll see what I mean. As we walk our way through the story, I'd like us to be thinking about how the divine author, the Bible calls Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. How does Jesus want to tell our stories? Let's follow this one and see how it works. So the first piece of this story we might call a bitter beginning. A bitter beginning. It's found in chapter 1. We'll spend a little more time with this first piece because it sets up the rest. Verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So the story takes place during the days, the period called the Judges. So this is after the settling of the Promised Land, but before the time of the kings. Now these were not good days for the people of Israel. During the days of the judges, the people continually wandered away from God and did what was right in their own eyes. God would come to the rescue, raising up a judge like Samson or Gideon or Deborah to get them back on track again, only to have the people wander away again. But during these dark and turbulent days, the book of Ruth gives us a story of one family simply trying to make their way in a wild world. So it happens that a famine comes to the land of Judah. So this family of Elimelech decides that they'll, that they'll go off to the neighboring land of Moab in search of food and a better life. Now we should understand that Moab is pagan territory and it's enemy territory. 
but they decide to go there to try to make the best they can of their situation. But no sooner do they arrive there in Moab than things go from bad to worse. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now the only thing worse than being a widow in those days was to be a widow in a strange land without your relational support systems. And that's where Naomi finds herself. Now fortunately, she at least has two sons to look out for her. Now these two sons take Moabite wives which is not really every Jewish mother's dream, but that's what they do. At least they have found companionship, and at least the family has a future. Until the unthinkable happens. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So now she's lost all the men in her life which leaves her in a desperate situation, financially and emotionally. Now, ironically, by this time, the famine is over back in Judah. So she decides if she's going to be alone, she might as well be alone in her hometown. So she decides to go back to Judah. Now, at first, her two Moabite daughter-in-laws want to go with her, but she encourages them to remain in Moab and make a life for themselves. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, we're not actually told that the Lord's hand had turned against her, but that's how Naomi is perceiving the situation. She figures she's bad luck, she's cursed, and these young women don't want to be around her. So after many, many tears are shed in the road, Orpah decides to, to go back to Moab. But Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's one of the most remarkable declarations of love and loyalty in all of the Bible. Now, we're not told exactly how Ruth came to this kind of love and loyalty, but somehow she's become deeply attached not only to Naomi, but to Naomi's God as well. She's determined to stay, and so Naomi finally decides to stop arguing. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Keep in mind, 10 years have passed. There's no Instagram to keep up on each other's appearances. <laughs> and apparently, life has taken a toll on Naomi's appearance. Not only on her appearance, but on her spirit as well. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And again, she blames her misfortune on God. Now again, we're not told that God has inflicted this on her, but that's how she's perceiving it. It doesn't seem consistent with everything we know about God. But he has allowed it to happen. And so she concludes that God has turned against her. 
That's what I, what I love about the Old Testament. It's gritty. It's unfiltered. The text doesn't rebuke Naomi for saying this outrageous thing. It doesn't try to clean up her theology. It just leaves her accusation hanging there in space, allowing us to feel her pain and to wrestle with all the questions being raised by what's happened. Are things out of control? Has God turned against one of his own children? Is there really a future for these women back in Bethlehem? And then we come to the first comma, so to speak, in the story. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So the writer's letting us know that this first piece of the story is coming to an end, but there's another piece yet to come. And that's what the comma does. It gives us a pause to reflect on what's happened so far, but sets us up for what's going to happen next. So let's pause for a minute at this comma and reflect on this story. Have you ever felt like Naomi? Have so many bad, hard things happened to you that you've begun to wonder if God has abandoned you or even turned against you? Have you ever found yourself getting bitter about life, or faith, or church, or God? Have you ever begun to wonder if you'll ever really be happy again? I mean, these are real questions. These are valid feelings. And the Bible allows us to ask them and feel them out loud. I know more than a few people right now, people in my own life, people in this congregation, who are probably asking these questions and feeling these feelings right now. And sometimes we end up having to sit with these feelings and sit with these questions for a while. But here's the thing, with God, there's always more story to be told. He's always able to extend the story adding more to get to a better ending. So let's keep going in chapter two. And we'll move more quickly at this point. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let us go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So Ruth seems to be an industrious woman. She takes advantage of the social welfare safety net of the day by following after harvesters and, and picking up what's left over. In fact, the law required harvesters to leave a margin around their fields so there would always be something left for people who were in need. But notice this little phrase, verse 3, as it turned out. Other translations have it, it just so happened, or by chance. Now, this is the writer winking at us, giving us a little elbow saying it's really not by chance. It didn't just so happen. The writer's letting us know that something's going on behind the scenes. Ruth didn't just happen to glean in a field belonging to Boaz. 
who's not only a wealthy and eligible landowner, but also a member of a Limelech's clan. Something's going on here. So later in the story, Boaz shows up to check on how the harvest is going, and he notices this young, hardworking foreign woman in his field. Boaz asks the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what he's asking. Is she available? Now, we don't know if he's attracted by her physical appearance, by her work ethic, by her strange exotic demeanor. Who knows? But he clearly has eyes for her. He calls her over, greets her personally, invites her to glean in his field anytime she wants, and promises that his servants will always look out for her. Well, Ruth is overwhelmed by the kindness and favor of this man she's just met. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should notice me, a foreigner? May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my lord, she said. Well, now something really is going on here. I mean, this is right out of a Jane Austen novel here, right? I mean, working class girl meets wealthy, eligible bachelor. I mean, she gets home that night loaded down with barley, and Naomi says, whose field were you gleaning in? And when she says, Boaz, Naomi says, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, the way the law worked in ancient Israel, if, if a man lost something, if he lost property to creditors, or if he got sold into slavery, or if he died before bearing any children, the custom was for a member of his clan, a relative, to have the right and responsibility to redeem what had been lost, to buy back the property, to purchase his freedom, or to marry his widow in the hopes of raising up children who would preserve the family name. They called it the kinsman redeemer. So now this story is getting a whole lot more interesting. In fact, do you notice what Naomi says when, when Ruth tells her about Boaz? She says, the Lord bless him. The Lord bless him. Apparently, Naomi hasn't quite given up on the possibility that God might still be paying attention to her life. And so now we have two pieces of the story, a bitter beginning, comma, followed by a surprising encounter. And at this point, the writer inserts another comma, another pause to rest, catch our breath, and reflect. He writes, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we appreciate the pause, but we get the sense that something else is about to happen, so we want to keep going. So let's get to that third piece in chapter three, which is, in fact, a bold plan, a bold plan. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing on the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Now, before we get to this strange custom here, <laughs> let's just first notice that these women 
are not sitting around in their tough circumstances waiting for God to rescue them. First Ruth going off to the field and now Naomi coming up with a plan are doing what they can to make their way in the world, trusting that God will come alongside them at some point perhaps and honor their efforts. And so if you should be finding yourself at a comma moment in life, between the pieces, a pause to reflect, not knowing what's going to happen next, don't just sit around waiting for God to drop the next thing into your lap. Get up and do something. Go get a job. Get any job. Go back to school. Get a degree. Get out of the house and meet some people. Find a place to volunteer or serve. The Bible never actually says God helps those who help themselves, but it's pretty consistent with Scripture. And it's really what these women are doing here. So now let's get to this custom of the uncovering the feed and the blanket and the whole deal. Something's going on here culturally we don't really understand. I mean, you talk about speed dating. This is going to move things along pretty quickly. <laughs> Clearly, Ruth is sending Boaz a message. And it's not, let's just be friends. So later that night, after Boaz is asleep, Ruth slips into the room, uncovers his feet, and lies down. We'll pick it up in verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of my family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, and don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Well, now things are really beginning to heat up here. I mean, talk about a romance novel. This is Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennett bumping into each other by the pond outside Pemberley. It's a spark of romance. Boaz wastes no time in promising to do everything he can to redeem the family. And at first light, he sends Ruth home with a bundle of barley. Then she told, then Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now this is not just Boaz trying to get in good with a future mother-in-law. This is the author of the story winking at us again, giving us a hint that something else is going on here because that phrase empty-handed it's the same language Ruth, uh, Naomi used a few months ago when she said the Lord brought her back empty-handed. The, the story is reminding Naomi, it's reminding us that with God, there's always more story to be told. It's not over yet. He's always working. And with that, we come to another comma, verse 18. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Apparently, even bitter Naomi is beginning to believe that God may be working on her behalf. And so we have a bitter beginning, followed by a surprising encounter, which leads to a bold plan, which now involves a dramatic intervention. To make a long story longer here, Boaz now takes initiative, and he sets out to redeem the family name and property, but he discovers to his dismay that there's another relative who has prior right and responsibility to redeem the family. 
And so he has to have first choice. And at the beginning, this relative seems interested in redeeming the land. And why not? He'll get property out of it. But when Bo, it looks like the whole deal's going to fall apart. But when Boaz explains that in order to redeem the property, you also need to take Ruth the Moabite as your wife, the man is less interested. So he agrees to hand his rights over to Boaz. And the scripture says they exchange sandals to seal the deal, which doesn't sound all that appealing, but it's probably cheaper than a couple of attorneys. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. And Boaz announces, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And with that, Scripture says, the whole town cheers. You see what's going on here? This is like an ancient Israelite version of The Bachelor. (laughs) Everybody has secretly been watching this budding, unlikely romance unfold, and they're pulling for this couple. May you have standing in in Ephrata, they say, and be famous in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. Another one of those winks from the author that something's going on here. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, yeah, that's in the Bible. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And so this story, which began with a bitter beginning followed by a surprising encounter, which led to a bold plan involving a dramatic intervention, now concludes with a happy ending. Now, it's probably not the story Naomi would have chosen, but it's the story life handed to her. And it's the story that God redeemed for his purpose and for her good. Now, I'm not saying that God engineered the losses in order to make the story more interesting. Sometimes in life, losses happen. What I'm saying is that God worked with the losses to bring about something good and eternally meaningful. And that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. When we say that God is sovereign, we're not really saying that God controls everything. We're saying that God crafts everything, that he works with everything, that he weaves the pieces of our story, the good and the bad ones, weaving them together into a fabric, a story, a masterpiece that ultimately resounds to his glory and brings good to our lives. And so this story, which began with a family being torn apart by tragedy and loss, ends with a family being restored and facing a bright future. 
The story which begins with God being slandered ends with God being praised. This story, which could appear to be a random series of events and circumstances, becomes an epic tale of love, romance, and redemption. But only because a divine author is at work, putting the pieces together to tell one of the greatest stories ever told. In fact, as marvelous as this story is in its own right, there's actually something even bigger and better going on here. Listen to the final lines of the book. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's right. That little boy, that grandma Naomi is bouncing on her knee, he becomes the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. All this time, we thought we were just following the story of one family in, in uncertain dark days of Israel's history. But it turns out all the while, something much bigger than that is going on. Through his work in the life of this family, he's not only, God is not only preparing the way for Israel's greatest king, he's preparing the way for Israel's Messiah, who will come and be born as a descendant of that same David and be born in that very same town many, many generations later. But that piece of the story won't be told for more than a thousand years. It won't be told until an angel appears in the night sky outside Bethlehem and says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Only God could take these cut-off pieces of people's stories and weave them together in such a way that they turn out for their good and for the good of humankind and for the glory of God. And so, a well-punctuated life trusts God to put the pieces of our story together for our good and his glory. A well-punctuated life trusts God to put the pieces of our story together for our good and his glory. Naomi couldn't possibly have known where her life was headed or how all the pieces would come together. But God was working in her, through her, around her, and sometimes in spite of her to accomplish something eternally significant and something that would be good for her and her descendants. And he can do the same with your story and with mine. So if you should be wondering if your life is headed anywhere in particular, if you should be asking if God has somehow turned against you, if you should be wondering if you can ever really be happy again, take a lesson from the wandering widow named Naomi who exchanged a bitter life for a better life, trusting God to put the pieces of her story together in a way she never could have imagined. And that's why I love the comma, because it reminds us that with God, there's always more story to be told. Let's pray.
Lord, every time we open this book, we are amazed once again at how you can speak to us from times and places and cultures from long, long ago. Places and cultures we couldn't possibly understand. And yet these stories come to life with such passion and promise and drama and relevance to our own lives. So Lord, we're grateful that you know everyone's story here today. You know exactly where we are. Lord, for those of us who are experiencing a season of great joy and abundance and possibility, Lord, we offer you our thanks and praise for all that you're doing. For those who are struggling to find you right now, wondering when and where you're going to show up, we pray that you might give them faith and perseverance. And Lord, we take great comfort in the fact that you are a God who never gives up on your people, that you are always working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. May it be so, Lord, for our joy, for your glory, and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.